Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. Here, as always, with my co-host, Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Today, Wednesday the 6th of May, is a first for our podcast, recording an interview with our guest, Heather Smith, with each of us calling in from three separate locations. Now, I need to apologise in advance because the audio quality is not great. In particular, I am quite hard to hear. But we learned some lessons today that will hopefully improve things in future episodes. And regardless, it was refreshing to get away from the news of the day and dive into the substance of some of the issues we discuss most on this podcast in all their depth and complexity. Here is Alan to get us started. Thanks very much, Darren. And I'm really happy to introduce Dr. Heather Smith to the podcast. Now, I can't think of any Australian public servant who's worked so successfully at the highest levels of both economic policy and national security policy as Heather. Until January, she was Secretary of the Department of Industry, Innovation and Science. She also served as Secretary of the Department of Communications and the Arts and as Deputy Secretary in both the Departments of Prime Minister and Cabinet and Foreign Affairs and Trade. She and I first worked together when she was Deputy Director General in the Office of National Assessments, and there she spanned both international economic analysis and geopolitics. She's held senior jobs as well in Treasury, the Reserve Bank, and at the ANU. Now, in the course of all this, she spent time as the senior Australian official during the year Australia chaired the G20, and she ran Malcolm Turnbull's task force on innovation and science. She's a recipient of the Public Service Medal and lots of other awards. She originally came to Canberra to study for a master's degree in economics, then a PhD at the ANU, and Heather, your thesis was on the role of government in the industrialization of Taiwan and Korea in the 1980s, which all seems strangely relevant again. And now she's on the board of both China Matters and the United States Studies Center, and lots more to come, I'm sure. Heather is exactly the sort of person we need to guide us through these perilous times. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Darren. You've written about the ongoing importance of the G20 and the opportunities it offers to Australia. And of course, it's very important to us because it provides us with a seat at the high table of international decision making. As I said in the introduction, you worked successfully at first hand as the Australian Sherpa, which for those of our listeners who've forgotten about it is a term of art which refers to the senior official whose responsibility is to guide the leaders to the summit. And you did that in 2014 when we actually did manage to get some quite important things done. But the world's changed a lot since then, as we've seen in recent weeks. And I want to press you on whether you think the G20 is in fact salvageable as a useful institution for action. And what concrete things would you be trying to press through on its agenda now? 
Well, I think if the G20 didn't exist now, you probably couldn't establish it in this current geopolitical environment. So whatever its weaknesses, I guess it is better than nothing. And that actually highlights, I think, how much the world has changed since 2014, when the G20 was still riding high from its response to the global financial crisis. Although many of the geopolitical trends that we are seeing now were actually, I think, beginning to take shape and were starting to simmer. The shift in balance of power to a multipolar world were playing out around the table. The G20 with groupings within that, the G7 were no longer calling the shots. The US was learning, I think, that it could no longer unilaterally put proposals on the table and expect it to be supported without having built support beforehand, especially since it had been the epicentre of the GFC. While the emerging market economies, because they were driving around two-thirds of global growth, were becoming more influential, albeit with quite different agendas. So I think, Alan, as you and I wrote in the AFR recently, it's the lack of a coordinated response to the global pandemic and economic crisis that I think is a stunning indictment of the state of multilateralism, the state of political leadership, and also how much trust has deteriorated between countries. Now, much of this has probably been the result of US-China tensions and the rise of populist and nationalistic leaders, but also that I think in the absence of US leadership, no one else has come to the fore to rally the G20, even as the lack of a coordinated response to a combined health and economic crisis was known. And it's not like pandemics weren't part of anyone's scenario planning. They were. And I like Richard Huss's language where he's written that pandemics, they're not black swans. They are baked into the cake of globalisation. So coming to your question about concrete things that we should be really thinking about, well, having failed as a first responder, the G20 does still need to be the steering group for global recovery. And its focus, I think, really needs to be on the poor and vulnerable parts of the world, really looking towards the end of the year of extending that debt moratorium, particularly for those who need it, because high debt levels always are constrained in a slow recovery. And we have very high debt levels across the developing world. And I think the G20 could really commit to making the vaccine free to those countries when and if it comes available. I think it's important to try and get agreement on principles on global supply chain management, because that's going to be important in trying to shore up confidence in business and in markets that the world is not going to ratchet down into a beggar thy neighbour path. And if we can't achieve this, I think a no less easy task is going to have to be to push for language that tries to hold the line against further backsliding into protectionist measures and certainly into protectionist language and or a commitment to unwinding some of those measures that have been put in place in response to the pandemic. And I think finally, trying to actually ensure that the blame game of who started the crisis doesn't dominate the leaders meeting and that before November, there is enough support for an independent review on the lessons we need to learn so that the G20 can actually focus on next steps, which is reform of the WHO and really how to better integrate our health responses and systems. So can it be salvaged? I think it can be salvaged, but we need to be realistic about the role it can play. 
I think we're at a dangerous point in global history and safeguarding multilateral institutions isn't the priority of leaders at this point in time, even though it needs to be. I think the more relevant question is what would the world look like without the G20? It's still the only global forum that brings the leaders together that represent the bulk of the world's economic and strategic weight. And right now, I think it's about getting leaders to the table and ensuring that leaders drive the agendas of the Bretton Woods institutions that are sitting around the table. I think we need to take a longer term perspective. It's still a a very young institution. It's just over 10 years old. Two global economic crises in 12 years is rather unprecedented in history in terms of an institution. And the world has effectively, I think, been in a political recession for much of this period. So the only leader now at the G20 table compared to 2008 is Angela Merkel. So I think we may have to wait for the next turning point of political history to unfold until there emerges a leader or a critical mass of leaders that are prepared to drive outcomes for the common good. So between then and now, I think we'll have to rely on finance ministries and central banks to really drive progress. It's important, I think, to remember that G20 was actually a finance minister's forum before it was a leader's forum, having risen out of the Asia crisis. So those institutional linkages between central banks and finance ministries are deep and I think they're enduring. And it's that coordinated strengthening of financial stability after the GFC that arguably has probably been the most important contribution of the G20. And that's the part that is now working, I think, the most effectively in terms of crisis response. And it's the part, again, that has the habits of cooperation that are there and have been built up. Yeah, well, those are things we can do. But are there other ways in which we can preserve its value? Because quite honestly, waiting around for the next generation of leaders, there's an element of wishful thinking in that on all our parts, I think. Mm. Well, I I think there's a few things we can do. We we need to keep working with like-minded countries to keep the agenda as focused as we possibly can. And I've always thought that there's three areas that the G20 can add value at different points in, in different stages of its history. Those three areas are really focusing on economic recovery in this case, giving political support to global cross-cutting issues, the global commons, if you like, and reform on global institutions. I think the vulnerability that Australia has been very conscious of is not to see the G20 become the Christmas tree to hang every global issue on which makes it only less relevant over time. And we do this by working very hard behind the scenes, working with the Troika arrangement within the G20. And it's also important to work with the next chairs going forward, Italy as the next chair. Given 18 months from now, we are still going to be in a very slow recovery pathway. So we really need to work with other members to try and keep that agenda as clean and as focused as possible. It's inevitable that US trade tensions are going to spill over and dominate as they have in the past G20 meetings. And it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, I think, to get agreed language anytime soon. So in that case, it may be time, again, as we have written about, to think in the case of some multilateral institutions that we might need to remove the straitjacket on the consensus approach in the G20 and let those that want stronger language to support the global trading system to be able to do so. 
And this would be a shift for Australia and it would be a shift for the G20 model. But it is an example of, I think, how we will need to be more tactically flexible in this new world. And I think we've seen a bit of that recently with the EU-led workaround on the deadline of the WTO appellate body by signing up other countries, including China, to a new framework to work through disputes. So we and others have put out strong statements of support for this approach, and I think that's a good thing. And I think finally, inevitably, as a middle power, we have a huge stake in retaining a seat at the top table. And that is not necessarily assured if you were to reconstitute the G20 at this point in time. So our strength is always that we are seen as a constructive, pragmatic player across the table. And in large part, that's because of our sustained growth and record of reform at home that has allowed us to parlay that into influence. And I think what we do at home still is really the most important thing of how we preserve our role in the G20 and hence how we can help preserve the G20. Yeah, thanks, Heather. Let's focus more closely on Australia's region. What different tools does Australia have at our disposal to help out our regional partners in responding to the impact of COVID-19. I mean, you mentioned the GFC before, go back before that even to the Asian financial crisis, Australia was able to make a a useful contribution using economic and financial tools in the uh, region. But I'm wondering now about what we can do in current circumstances where Australia has fewer of those resources available What about science and technology, health policy? What are the other sorts of efforts we can use to shape international responses? So talk us through the stakes facing Australia's engagement strategies and the types of assistance that we should be considering. Well, I think we have an important role to play in the recovery phase through the usual channels that we would deploy our resources working through with our regional partners as well through the G20, as I mentioned, through the international financial institutions and the regional development banks and, of course, bilaterally through our aid program. But I think there's an opportunity to put new institutional options on the table. A number of people have raised these, for example, regional pandemic early warning systems, similar to what followed after the 2004 Asian tsunami could be one such option. Some have raised creating regional centres for disease and pandemic control, as well as thinking about strategic medical equipment reserves. And it could be that APEC, with its really well-formed habits of cooperation and deep networks is possibly the most workable option to think these issues through. But as you say, Alan, I think it's in the areas of science and technology and health policy where the opportunities are great for new forms of engagement. And as you and I have written, the crisis has really highlighted the critical forms of multilateral and regional cooperation taking place outside of the formal remit of decision making, particularly in the scientific and research community. So it seems to me we should be working with our regional partners to try and formalise these informal and mostly bilateral networks in a more hooked up way. Australia, I think, along with others in the region, those that have weathered the pandemic better than others, have an obligation to really assist and show leadership on these issues where others may not have the capacity at this point in time. 
But I think we should also be looking to parlay our experience into influence and thinking about how we can further our strategic interests. And Australia and, and others are in a struggle for influence in the Indo-Pacific, particularly in the Southwest Pacific and in Southeast Asia. And notwithstanding where the disease emanated from, China, apart from its provision of medical supplies, is likely to look to assist under-resourced health systems in countries in our region to increase its influence. So I think we also need to be on the front foot as well to really help those under-resourced health systems and to really build capacity and training for the future. Similarly, as what we comprehensively did with Indonesia in the wake of the Bali bombings of establishing you know, really long-term capacity building. And I think at home, we also need to probably have a more targeted regional health and science strategy that is a little bit more front and centre of our soft power toolkit. And that's just, a, I think, a matter of working through those issues and adopting what then is a traditional set of toolkits of engaging with countries in our region. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's a different way of thinking about how Australia influences the region from the one we've normally adopted. Thanks, Darren. Yeah, Heather, let's shift gears. And I wanted to ask about a trend that began before this crisis, but maybe or may have been accelerated by it. And I'm talking about calls across much of the West, and especially in the United States by the Republican Senator Marco Rubio, for a more active industrial policy, both in response to China's state dominance of its own economy, but also as a dimension of a strategic competition. Now, as Alan mentioned in his introduction, you wrote your PhD on industrial policy. So I'm wondering, when you see the emergence of these debates, what intellectual or historical frame do you apply to understand them? Well, I guess, given you've cited my history, the first thing I would say is calls for a more active industry policy is not that new. It's been going on for a long time. But my starting point or frame for thinking about this debate is really the existing structure of the economy. And that in turn is a function of history and I think the cultural state of the country. So I think those with deep industrial bases historically have tended to come about by war and the US and the rise of the military industrial complex, I think is the prime example or those countries that have been part of a post-war reconstruction and Germany and Japan are the obvious examples there, or those countries that face existential threats and, and Israel is, I think, an example there. Mm. Others have built a strong nexus between the state, their financial systems and their industrial structure, sometimes by necessity in response to long-standing strategic uncertainty and historical tension. I think Northeast Asia is the example there. Mm. And yet the Asia crisis showed that state-led growth does have its limit at a certain point in the history of an economy. And elsewhere, import substitution strategies and state dominance has largely been a failure in Latin America, I think is an example there. So when you look at Australia, I think we start from quite a different position. Our history has been to move really from protectionism to winding back industry assistance from the 1980s 
to one of industry transition and assistance, especially to the manufacturing sector, to one now of facilitating and enabling industry through tax incentives, grants and various programs. So I think Australia, though, compared to other countries, has not taken as much of a directive approach to industry policy, particularly in response to technological competition. So other countries have become more nationalistic, more mission-driven, more head-turning, if you like, in terms of naming strategic sectors, not necessarily backing them, but naming strategic mm. sectors. China, obviously, with its massive Made in China policy, is an example. The EU has invested billions in R&D and focused on naming strategic sectors. And parts of Asia have invested heavily in digital skills and capabilities. And that latter point about digital skills and capability, that is where I think, in my view, is where governments should really be investing public money in. And that is really, I think, the key area. So it's unlikely, I think, this crisis, though it is warlike, obviously, in scale and in impact, will give rise to massive nation building on a massive scale like we saw through, for example, the Marshall Plan. Given most countries have already effectively nationalised their economies and are going to have to unwind this, and pretty much all are deeply, deeply in debt. Can I ask for a bit more detail about how we are positioned here in Australia then? Notwithstanding the unwinding that's necessary, resilience of supply chains is now a live question and we are not going to be creating our own, you know, our own Indigenous supply chains for technologies and, and other large industries. So given our middling economic size, how much can we focus on this or, or deal with it? Mm. I think the issue for Australia is really our lack of scale, the size of our domestic market and also our distance to markets. We have some great high value added companies in Australia, high technology intensive, high end IP that are global in reach. And we also have some very agile firms that have pivoted as we've seen very quickly in producing medical supplies. But by and large, our industrial sector is made up of small and medium-sized firms. At the same time, we have some parts of our business sector that historically have been sheltered from global competition for quite a long period of time. So I guess back to my earlier point about where you start is very important about the policies that then follow. So our starting position is one of where business investment in R&D in our industrial sector has been falling over a period of time. As a country, we tend to be better at process innovation rather than new to world product mm. innovation. Our rate of commercialization of our world-class research is still in the bottom half, I think, of the OECD. And we've got a, an innovation system that's quite fragmented, even though we spend quite a lot over, I think, about 10 billion a year on innovation. A lot of this is concentrated in health and medical research, which makes sense given how world-leading we are. There's also, I think, though, deep-seated cultural factors at play about how you position yourself as a country going forward. And we've still yet to move, I think, from that mindset that here in Australia, if you fail at something, you're still forever marked. In other cultures, the question is, what did you learn from this and what do you then go on to do? So none of this is to talk down our great manufacturing sector, but it's really, if you look at it at the broadest level, my reading of the Australian context is that government will expect 
large businesses to be the driver of their destiny as they reconfigure their models in response to the massive disruption of this crisis while really supporting small firms, medium firms and employees through the tax transfer system. So again, given Australia's starting point plus our history and our, our culture, I think that's probably the right approach. And again, we need to be realistic. The budget just isn't going to be there. So given that background, what is a realistic industry policy? I think we need to be clear about the problem we are trying to solve for in having a more active industry policy. Is it the self-sufficiency? Is it about building resilience into supply chains? What is going to be productivity enhancing and what is going to be productivity detracting? And other countries are going to have different views from us as to what is self-sufficiency and resilience in their national interest beyond medical supplies. For example, others seeking self-sufficiency in agriculture would only distort world prices and potentially harm our own interests. Having said that, I do see some degrees of resilience being built into our supply chains going forward. I think there's now an expectation by the public that government will do whatever it takes to ensure supplies of medical equipment and certain pharmaceuticals. I'd expect we will work with trusted suppliers where input markets are grossly distorted. An example is obviously in the energy sector, especially oil supplies and elsewhere, but also a sector like critical minerals, where a diverse source of supply are actually essential to functioning stable markets and to ensuring supply. And I think businesses will need to better understand their own supply chain, and many don't because they are long and deep supply chains. Some businesses are obviously going to move to hold greater inventories and or shorten or diversify their supply chains, and all of this will come at a cost. And as I mentioned before, I see a clear role for government in building up digital capability. But up to that point, I think it all makes sense in terms of what a more activist approach would look like in terms of a role for government. Going beyond that, though, I think is where we begin to move into an potentially replicate some of the distortions and inefficiencies that the 1980s reforms were designed to address. So in the end, we still need to work hard to ensure and rely upon open, transparent markets for much of our needs if we really want to retain and build on our living standards and actually create employment opportunities going forward. Well, let me complicate that excellent economic discussion with a different political force, and that, of course, is national security, because the question of industrial policy is coming up in a time of major power rivalry, and that's all contributing to an expansion of the concept of national security. And with the COVID-19 crisis, we have these new questions about stockpiles, about the resilience of supply chains, and these are, of course, in turn overshadowed by the decoupling debate which is going to expand potentially the concept of national security even further. So I've got two questions here as well. I mean, first, can you offer us your assessment of the trends that have led us to this point? Well, technology, it is the driver of the fourth industrial revolution. It's the factor of production that has consistently driven human progress through time. So I think the question is, how do we harness the benefits while protecting our national security, as you say, in an era of major power rivalry? 
We've had a succession of issues that really have been core, I think, in terms of coming through the national security lens, cybersecurity, telecommunications, interception, critical infrastructure, where the balance of policy deliberation, I think, has quite rightly, as I mentioned, been through that lens. But Australia is a price taker of capital and of technology. So the challenge is how we navigate the US-China strategic technological competition and those more frequent trade-offs that I think we'll have to make between national security and harnessing the benefits of open innovation. China's approach now, I think, is fundamentally different to its earlier development model as it seeks self-sufficiency in a range of foundational technologies for both commercial and military applications. The US has responded to that by trying to protect its domestic technologies by trying to stifle China through export controls and investment restrictions, while also trying to stimulate innovation at home. Now, until this crisis, my overall sense was that outside of the US and China, there wasn't really a collective appetite for broad-based technological confrontation. But this could now speed up, maybe it could widen, and it might reshape global tech supply chains and also international governance. Now, this is not in anyone's interest, a sustained retreat into technology nationalism is going to give rise to different systems and rules and the potential for coercive action as technology is so enmeshed in networks and infrastructure in so many complex ways. So maybe the very complexity of these linkages and the linkages of global value chains suggest that we might reach a natural limit as to how decoupled economies and digital systems can get. And I think we need to remember that two-thirds of our region's trade is internal, and much mm. of this is ICT equipment, of which China and the US dominate some or part of that supply chain. So we could be in a world, I think, of part competition, part cooperation, countries seeking greater interdependence in key strategic sectors while benefiting from cooperation in less critical sectors. We could see some diversion, I think, supply chains from China to other countries in Asia and beyond. Japan has been offering incentives to encourage mm. its firms to move out of China into Vietnam. And we'll see, I think, some onshoring and reshoring in some countries, perhaps not as wholesale as some commentators may think at this point in time. And we're probably going to see the US doubling down, although I don't know what that doubling down actually means. But certainly there seems to be bipartisan support for getting even tougher on China on this part of competition. Mm. Maybe if we could stay with the critical technology sector for a minute. I mean, I mentioned this earlier. Here in Australia, we're not going to be building our own Huawei or our own Ericsson. We're not going to be making a semiconductor foundry. But the products that these companies and these industries make have security concerns attached to them and overshadow how we think about our supply chains and how we source these technologies. So how do we strike the balance there? Yeah, it's a hard question. Well, I think we are in a world, a very messy world of managed interdependence. So I think how to think about what are critical technologies is one of the hardest issues facing mm. policymakers. 
there are always cases where we need to protect certain areas for national security concerns and they're well documented and understood. But we also need to be clear in what we're trying to address, whether we're looking at a specific foundational technology or its application, and also be clear about what aspects are we wanting to control or influence. Is it the development, is it the access, or is it the use of that technology? So for Australia, we can't compete dollar for dollar in how we source and use our technology. And we derive enormous benefits from an open collaborative system of research. And we have world-class research capabilities that the rest of the world wants. And China and the US are also our largest research collaborative partners. So given this complexity, again, it's likely to require a range of policy approaches. I think traditional approaches done in isolation around export controls, visa restrictions or investment restrictions are likely to be self-limiting for a country like Australia. But planning for sovereign capability in some sectors makes sense. We do this through naval shipbuilding, as does being part of high-end supply chains with trusted partners. The space sector is an example. We need to try and diversify market exposure where we can, but also our business and universities and research institutions need to really be aware of who they are collaborating with and to what end. And to me, that just boils down to good governance and risk management. Mm. But ultimately, we will need an organising framework for critical technologies along the lines, and I always like Alan's language in this space about how you need to build a few small gardens with high walls and keep the rest open with low or no walls. So I would expect, like the US, we will enter the world of creating lists of foundational technologies, if only to provide more certainty to business, but even these are going to be hard to define. So all of this is by way of saying we can't just apply a national security lens or frame to public policy making on these issues. The very interdependence of these issues requires a multidisciplinary approach and genuine engagement with the relevant sectors so that the best informed decisions can be made by government in the national interest. So I think that the role of public policymakers here is about getting a balance between our policy frameworks that shape our domestic interests and that goes to how we think about markets, institutions, our overall well-being with frameworks that shape Australia's position in the world, how we think about our interests, values, our ideology and our history. And then it's up to government to to make those decisions. So the point I'd make then is that we can't really make these decisions in isolation without having these frameworks because it's going to undermine our long-term interests. And we need to be careful in this environment that strong personalities don't end up driving institutional outcomes rather than a balanced view of national interests actually driving outcomes. Because in the end, coming back to your initial question, Darren, technology has really collectively helped us get through this crisis and connected us to mm. each other. And it's underpinned the unprecedented levels of international cooperation, particularly on science, as the world searches for a vaccine. Mm. Well, if national security is one complicating factor, domestic politics is another. Back in 2018, you gave the keynote address at the Institute of Public Administration Australia's event on the theme of doing policy differently. And in that speech, you identified three fundamental forces shaping Australia's future. The rise of China, the impact of technology, especially on the future of work 
And third, and I'll quote you here, the dangerous ambivalence towards the two features that underpin our democracy, respect for an investment in institutions that support our prosperity and the erosion of support for openness to the world, end quote. Now, many argue that the backlash against normal politics, against globalism, you might say, is fundamentally rooted in economic grievances. But you noted in your speech that Australia is a bit of a paradox here. Like elsewhere, the mood here is grim and anxieties are rising. But unlike most of the rest of the industrialised world, we've done pretty well economically. Incomes have continued to rise. Income equality has not markedly changed and many lost manufacturing jobs have been replaced. So what's your diagnosis? How did we get here? You're right. The speech did highlight that we were living in a paradox that throughout our modern history, Australia has known only a globalising world and that while we were and are economically strong, the national mood was contradicting the relative economic position we were in. But also that highlighted that we seem to have lagged behind the rest of the Western world in our loss of confidence in institutions, perhaps because we had avoided the GFC and had our terms of trade boom driven widespread growth. So for much of the West, this long cycle of growth and productivity driven by globalisation in terms of delivering rising living standards probably peaked in the late 80s and early 1990s. And this long cycle was based on the premise that market forces would gradually diminish job, wage and income disparities. But it actually had a profoundly unexpected consequence that inequality between countries diminished, but inequality within many countries rose, particularly within the relationships between urban and regional areas. Mm. This was most pronounced in the US where the displacement effect of trade was underestimated, whereas it underpinned Asia's rise and our living standards given the complementary nature of our economy with Asia. So in Australia, the gap I think was widening between those for whom the modern globalised world was working and for those for whom it was not. And while we haven't experienced the same degree of inequality, there were enough indicators at play to really show that citizens were feeling voiceless, feeling voiceless in decisions that were affecting them. So there were surveys consistently showing that many Australians felt left out after our nearly three decades of economic growth. The Edelman survey showed a declining trust in democracy, the media and in politicians. The Secretary's Board, um, we actually had a discussion on this issue in late 2018, led by myself and Daryl Karp, the CEO of Museum of Australian Democracy. And what really struck us was, apart from this survey work, was a particular survey that CEDA had done, the Pulse of the Nation survey, that showed only 5% of Australians believed they had personally gained from 26 years of uninterrupted growth and that nearly 80% believed that the gap between the richest and the poorest in Australia was now unacceptable. So this suggests there has been an increasing public backlash against the policy narrative of the past decades, that growth was not seen to be inclusive, was not being seen to be fairly shared. So economic insecurity was also growing, fueled by rising household debt, stagnant wages and low productivity growth. And this was occurring simultaneously, I think, with the decline of trust in institutions, the ability of political institutions to govern 
for the majority rather than for vested interests. And overlaying all of this had been a decade of obviously political instability. And somewhat unique to Australia, I think, technological change and digitisation was relative to other countries, I think probably seen more as a threat than an opportunity with the focus on robots taking our jobs rather than how should we galvanise ourselves and prepare for the future of the work. And that, again, perhaps is a function of our history and our culture. Mm -hmm. Well, let's bring this back then to the current crisis arising from COVID-19. Given what you've said about the political trends that got us here, what does public policy look like on the other side of this crisis? I mean, does it provide an opportunity to reset things, perhaps? For me, the big question going forward is whether this crisis is, as you say, Darren, an opportunity for a reset. A reset on the value of expertise, a reset on trust in government and the public sector. And that certainly seems to be the case so far in the handling of the pandemic response. And ultimately, whether the collaborative ways our political leaders have managed through this crisis continues. And I really hope so, because I think we're going to need this trust across all those spectrums to hold on the difficult recovery ahead. I also think there could be a reset on how Australians think about technology with the crisis having speeded up the trend of digitisation and, and automation and I think hopefully greater confidence in how we use technology with more Australians feeling empowered and connected with technology. It's a great example, the way we're doing this today in a, a totally mm. different format. For me, the other big question is, are we going to see a better or worse model of globalisation? What does globalisation 2.0 look like? And is it better or worse? And for whom is it better and worse for? And this goes to questions of whether business going forward will put more weight on value creation rather than cost reduction and shareholder value, and whether the protectionist tensions we've spoken about just speed up under a more beggar thy neighbour 1930s approach. Right now, I don't think we know the answers to these questions, but in terms of public policy, what is striking to me so far is how, unlike the GFC, where globally business was seen to disproportionately benefit more from government bailouts, most governments had focused more on protecting workers and small mm. business. So importantly, I think this is also true in the two countries that shape our strategic and economic future. China, that by the way, how they focus on labour and capital has implications for how much growth stimulus China can provide to the rest of the world. But also the US that after initially seeming to have funded big business, again, has now moved to really focus on small business. So if this rebalancing, if you like, is sustained in terms of focusing and rewarding labour over capital, that might go some way to help reset the social compact across countries and within countries and might rebuild political support for institutions and openness. Heather, I want to talk about ways of thinking. That answer sort of summarises neatly the fact that we've talked about already, that you began as an economist with a PhD and then spent a lot of time thinking and writing about strategic issues. What do economists miss when they observe and analyse the world? And on the other hand, what can non-economists most usefully learn from the way economists think? If you want to phrase it another way, what things about the world are economists most likely to get wrong 
and what are the non-economists most likely to miss? Well, I'm not going to make any friends or um, might even lose some friends in how I answer this question. <laughs> I think first economists don't give enough weight to power and yet as a policy economist I don't think you can be effective you don't really understand the forces or particularly the strategic forces that underpin many of the mega trends shaping the world that we've been talking about secondly and I know this is music to your ears Alan that economists could observe the world with a little more humility than what uh, <laughs> they currently do <laughs> there is much to be humble about particularly when you think about the adjustment impacts of trade policy which is partly responsible for the backlash against globalization related to this i think economists don't necessarily spend enough time thinking about the pathways of adjustment on who loses actually from change economists tend to start with the idea that winners will automatically be compensated, but it's actually power structures that often determine that mm. who will actually benefit. And finally, I'd say putting too much faith in the predictive power of economic models, particularly at this point in our history. This crisis is unprecedented with both the demand and the supply side of the economy shutting down and economic models can't capture the complexity of the supply chains um, we have been discussing today. And for this reason, I think any forecasts of a V-type recovery are unrealistic. What can non-economists learn or miss? There is a saying that some economists use that public policy debate is rife with people offering solutions in search of problems. Mm. And economic thinking helps you sift through and prevent partial views that can come through that thinking of the world dominating. And understanding linkages and trade-offs, I think, helps prevent those that seek to really exploit government's power in ways to advance their own ends. So I think it's the ability to really think about interdependencies and apply frameworks for problem solving in ways that really seek to benefit the majority and not the minority. Yeah, that's terrific. Look, let's finish by making some wild predictions. And to be fair, we're not going to put you on the spot alone, Heather. We'll each have a go at answering the question. COVID-19 has lain behind almost every answer we've given today. So in one sentence, what's the thing you expect to be most different in Australia and world after the pandemic passes? We'll let you have the last word, Heather. So I'll go to Darren first. What do you say? I don't think I can do it in one sentence, Alan, but I'll try and do it in three. I've spoken before about the expansion of the state and my expectation that states are going to encroach more and more on markets. And I think that's still true. But what struck me as quite remarkable um, recently was when Prime Minister Morrison was calling the leaders of the world to lobby for the government's proposal for an inquiry into the early stages of COVID-19. And along with calling Merkel and Macron, he reportedly also called Bill Gates. And so while states will reserve more and more domains for themselves and readily interfere with and squeeze out markets, I think, where there are stalemates um, within or between states in the provision of international public goods, and the domain is at least partially one that is not super sensitive politically, so maybe testing and vaccine development in this instance, I think large corporations and philanthropists may become more important than ever in the provision of some international public goods. What about you, Alan? Look, lots of countries, most countries, are going to be affected by the pandemic, deeply affected by the pandemic. But 
few of them I think are going to be changed. Australia is going to come out the other side of this feeling more like Australia. We're going to congratulate ourselves, you know, good on you Aussies, we've done the Aussie thing. China, I think, is going to look rather like China, all that speculation from commentators that they were facing a churnable moment, I think, is unlikely. But it really does seem to me that America is asking deep questions about how it operates in the world and how it deals with its own problems. And the thing that's going to be most different for Australia when this is over is that the United States will have, in some way, I don't know how, resolved or be in the process of resolving that internal debate Mm. uh, itself. So the US, I think, is going to be very different for us when this is all over. And that brings us to you, Heather. What do you say? Well, I think what will be most different in Australia's world will be, along the lines you were talking, Alan, will be the speeding up of strategic competition between the US and China and this will make for a more complex and a more dangerous world for us to navigate in. I think harder choices face us than are recognised in the current Australian debate on China that pits commercial interests and those with a particular ideological bent against each other. I think there is a new normal coming in terms of the power structure in Asia that arguably our region is now navigating more successfully than we are. So while we are beginning to recognise this new normal, we haven't, I think, worked out how to operate within it. Mm. Well, Heather, thank you very much. That was a fascinating conversation and I will be thinking about your answers for quite some time. So many thanks again for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we want to thank AAAA intern Maddie Gordon for her help with the research and audio editing and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Talk to you again soon.